You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the film podcast. As mentioned, it's been a while since we featured short films on the podcast. And to make up for that, we have short film directors joining the podcast to talk about their crafted short films. And our third filmmaker is the writer-director of a film called Women Take on Nepal, Tania Verbeck. Welcome to the film podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today and uh, have a good chat with you regarding the documentary. And you're an Australian filmmaker based in Sydney. Your film, Women Take on Nepal, won the Sony Film Festival Best Documentary. It's a very moving film, Tania, with so much heart, hope and spirit and an important story to tell, which is so empowering to the woman that your story is all about. So perhaps, Tania, tell our filmmaker audience what your film is all about. I'd put a post on my Facebook asking if anyone had any amazing stories to tell about humans here in Australia. Someone had advised about Som who had an orphanage or a hostel in Nepal, and I thought that was too big for me at the time. I was still learning about film and documentary making, so I thought that was too big, but then also was accepting for the challenge, so I waited a couple of years before I headed over there. And the initial story was just supposed to be about him and his dream to help the women from slavery in Nepal. So the earthquake in 2015 had just hit, there were a lot of orphans in his village who lost their parents, so he opened up an orphanage. And so that's what I initially went to go and film. So I headed over there in May 2019, where I met him and filmed a story that was supposed to just be for Facebook. And then it ended up being a lot bigger than that when I'd met the, the girls who were part of the orphanage who were now like 19, 20 years old. Som had also explained the fact that these girls couldn't be educated. They weren't earning enough money. They'd end up on the farms. So instead, he's also started a trekking business and allowed these girls to go and trek with them in the Himalayas and earn the second most uh, highest income in the country so they could spend that money on getting an education. And I thought this story is way bigger than I ever thought. And so then he invited me to do Everest Base Camp, which I, I always promised myself being a big hiker that I'd never do because I thought it was too commercial. But hearing the girls' stories, I went home and within a week accepted the offer to try and tell this story about the girls. And so it's a big story. There's a story about Som, there's a story about Take on Nepal, and there's also a story about the Friends of Himalayan Children that I had to try and compress into 20 minutes. So that's where the story began. And maybe you could just sort of lay out a little bit more detail on who Som is and his backstory. Yeah, so Som Tamang is a Nepalese-born Australian. He lives in Cairns. He's married to Susan Devitt, who's from Ireland and was born in a village called Batasi, which is about, it's only 50 kilometres from Kathmandu, but it can take up to six hours to get there. If you've been to Nepal, you can understand how the roads are. His incredible story was he, he left home when he was 10 years old with the want of it, getting an education and he followed a man, there's a, a trail that takes you down to Kathmandu and he followed a man down that trail thinking he knew how to get back home and then he ended up staying in Kathmandu getting lost and he became a slave himself. So he was put into a family with a promise of uh, getting an education but he ended up being a slave for a couple of years and he knew he wanted to get home but the only way he knew how to get home was that he knew that the sun set on a particular side obviously and that's where the path would take him home. So that's the only way as a kid he knew how to get home. 
So he got stuck in Kathmandu for quite some time. He was able to get away from the slavery and become a labourer and then he was able to find his way back home where he was able to support his family with a bit of money. Um, But by that stage, things were happening to his family with the women. They were being trafficked and that's when he learnt about this whole issue of sex or human trafficking within Nepal. And so then that's what inspired him to try and get somehow this system to stop within his own village so he saved enough money to build a small host- a hostel within the village to try and yeah help with the education of children. And then he, through that time, this is over a number of years, he came to Australia at that point to get himself an education, to learn a bit more about Western culture. And then he went back to build a bigger hostel and he's now just built a big school, which allows this, the kids to finish up to year 12 and then go to Kathmandu afterwards for college. So it's a big story. It's very hard to, to cut down. <laughs> Um, and I do wish I could have him in the interview because his story itself is a, a documentary that should be made. So tell us a little bit more about this whole human trafficking of the Nepalese girls and how they are trafficked overseas. We do watch TV shows and documentaries and we have this idea that they get mugged and kidnapped and blindfolded and put into the back of a car and taken away, which is not the case. It is a very well-organised, well-structured system where it's families that are involved. So it could be the uncles or the cousins. When I said before that hiking was the second most biggest income within Nepal, it's because human trafficking is the first. So a lot of the men are attracted to this wage and will do anything to get the girls across the borders. For the parents who are, you know, especially in the Patasi village, in poverty within the village, so the parents are willing and accepting because they do trust the family members to take them away with the promise and the hope that these girls will get a job over in India, but they end up getting prostituted out or sold to families in India for slavery. You can't tell it's happening. You could walk, you could go to the village and see a man holding a young girl's hand and you'll get told that that's the cousin when he's actually got intentions to try and traffic the girls out of the village. So that's the process. And this is so much more than just a film. You are changing women's perspectives on what they can achieve by empowering them to think beyond the norms of their everyday lives as Nepalese women. Just by listening to what you've been saying since the start of the interview is this is so much more of a bigger story than you initially thought. That's such a great question. I haven't spoken about it much, but of course, while I'm interviewing these girls, to them isn't a story. To them, this is normal life. So it was very hard to get any kind of reaction from them thinking that what they're going through is heroic or what they've been through is traumatic. So for them, they they don't feel like the hero and they don't feel they're empowering other people. Um, And it's not until you do the trek yourself and you get to base camp and or you get to hear their stories where they finally hear from us how inspiring they they actually are. I mean, when you listen to the full interview of, of Carmela, when I asked her about her parents before I filmed her and the way that she delivered about her mother killing her father was absolutely normal. There was no emotion. Obviously, it happens a lot in their village where they lose their parents, so it's just become part of the norm. And for us, we get so traumatised by this kind of event. So it was just very interesting to try and pull the emotions out of the girls to show that this is incredibly empowering for the rest of the world. You know, what struck me about the Nepalese women is their warmth and personality, especially the women in your documentary. They have this real spirit about them. And after watching your film, I was left with a real uplift in the spirit of the power to be able to help other people. 
You wouldn't be human if the story didn't touch you in some emotional way. And as filmmakers, I guess, Tania, that's the aim, isn't it? Is to have some sort of an experience when watching a film and any emotional connection that you feel is the best form of storytelling. And in this case, your doc has managed to layer that emotional connection even deeper because this is all happening in Nepal. Women are in danger, as you say, of working in prostitution rings in India. So to be able to offer that breaking the chain moment, I guess, and to see another way for women to work, live and survive is such a compelling, watchable story. So let me ask you this. How has this emotionally changed you as a person and as a filmmaker telling the story? When I first met the girls, well, first of all, I was so surprised by the fact that they could speak English so well and their warmth was just incredible. And I think that's from being someone that was pushing away from telling this story altogether to meeting these girls and wanting to desperately tell it and submit it to for the world to see. It obviously has made me feel a lot more worthy with it as being a filmmaker. I didn't, I never expected to kind of get to any particular level with this. So I got back from Nepal in January or February and started editing straight away, which was probably a bad mistake. I was too emotionally connected to it. So I told a story that I understood and 12 of the other women who climbed the trek would understand. But when I showed my parents, who are the best critics in the world, <laughs> they Obviously, they had mentioned that the, um, the the context wasn't clear enough for them to understand the story, so I, I put it away. And I really self-doubted myself at that point. I thought I wasn't capable of this, and but I would always post on my Instagram photos of the girls or little clips that I'd filmed, and then I'd put little compiles together and put that up on social media. And then I really thought to myself, this is a story that needs to be told, and it isn't about how good the quality is. This is about the story that's behind it. So I went back to the drawing board during lockdown, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. Sorry for anyone else that suffered during lockdown and really worked on putting three or four different versions together until that last version really stood out. And I, at that point, when I went to submit the documentary, I, to me, I didn't care what would come out of it because I told the story through the eyes of a Western privileged person and delivering two different versions from what they had to say and what, what Westerners had to say. So it's just like it, it was what it was. And if, if, the, if I could show anyone and one person could be, it could change one person's life or educate somebody about Nepal, then that was good enough for me. And it ended up being bigger than Ben-Hur. And I'm extremely proud as well as exhausted. Um, yeah, that's, that's where the story lies with, with that process. And how do you think emotionally it's changed you? Um, I, I certainly, I think I've, it's probably matured me a lot more, I, especially as a filmmaker. I, I, the patience it's taught me, the thought processes. I mean, to be honest with you, I went in there without having any structure at all. I knew it had to be in situ. I'm climbing a mountain. I didn't know if I was going to get sick within the first couple of days. So I didn't want to plan how this story would pan out. It was it was going to be in situ. It was. I don't want to change my ways as a filmmaker because of that production style and I think that's what I think I want my niche to be is just sort of go out there and find the story and the story will develop itself instead of having a full planned structure of how I want it to end. And how did all the engagements happen with permissions to be able to film there? What was happening on the ground and what were some of the steps that you had to go through to actually make that happen on the filming side? 
So, yeah, I mean, obviously Som being a very well-known person within the trekking industry was a massive help with requiring permissions. He's trying to change the culture and, and tradition of many, many years and there's always going to be people that don't want any changes like that. So we had to kind of work around that, but it was his, his magic and his gift that was able to, to get us to work around anything, any challenges that were going to be facing us during the filming. This is climbing to base camp of Everest, which is a huge achievement on its own. It's a real hurdle and barrier to break through. What were some of the behind the scenes stuff going on to coordinate that challenging feat to take place, Tania? Uh, It's not the first long distance trek I've done filming. I did the Lara Pinta Trail and filmed a documentary for an Indigenous organisation in the Northern Territory. So the it wasn't the kilometres that was going to kill me, it was the altitude that was going to devastate me, I think. And Som was really worried about me carrying such a heavy pack up the mountain and offered to have another Sherpa to help me get up there. But this was supposed to be a personal challenge for myself as well as telling the story. So I wasn't too worried about my physical health. I was quite fit at the time. I was worried more about the equipment, whether, you know, one, I could only bring one of everything. So if something was to break, especially the camera or lens, um, then the trip was going to be over. Um, And I did really well, I think, considering because I was stopping so often to film the shots, my body was able to adjust to the altitude pretty quickly. And so I didn't get the altitude sickness, whereas everybody else got quite sick. So if you want to save yourself from altitude sickness, I recommend you become a videographer (laughs) and take your time walking up that mountain. It really helps. And the team, how many were there on the ground helping you film this? Just myself. It was me, myself and I. I had to be the sound recorder, the interviewer, the videographer. Um, Like I said, I went up there with the intention of hopefully developing a story. I hadn't requested any funding for anyone or, or thought that it would be a big documentary. So I had to put a GoFundMe up and get some support, financial support from close people in my life. And I mean, and you can tell throughout the documentary, there are times there's an interview I've done with Susan, which was incredible, which I wish I could show more of, but we got to Numche Bazaar. I was completely exhausted by the time she'd finished sitting, uh, talking to the girls and sitting down. The light had gone. I had a mini light to put on top of my camera, which the battery had died. So I had to rely on whatever light was coming through the window. And it, it was a a very noisy interview and as you can tell and no one could fix the grading on that but I had to obviously use it for so people could see who Susan was so you can see there's times where the physical struggle kicked in and and the the struggles of trying to make things work but it still told the story and I think that's what's always important with filmmaking is the story more than the quality. And this film it was filmed before COVID Everest has been closed. How much of a problem now from the time that you filmed to what has gone on during lockdown, what has been happening to these girls and other future girls that could become involved in the program? Um, So on Saturday, I caught up. We did a a Zoom session with the girls to celebrate the Sony Film Festival win. Som called me just beforehand just saying to me, Tanya, we're really excited here in Australia, but you need to understand that the girls are in a really different place. And I had asked him what had happened. So for them, their work has been cut for 18 months. For us, we can go and, you know, take on another job somewhere just to fill in the time and get some money. But for them, they're in a village with nothing. So they've lost all their income. They've lost all their their form of exercise, just everything. Trekking means the world to these girls. And it was the one thing that was stopped them from doing the choice of the typical female role of getting married and having children and working on the farms um, and not educating themselves. 
So, yeah, because of COVID and that stopping, unfortunately, there's a lot of the girls within that village have ended up getting married. A couple have had children. Some of them are talking about trying to get to India to work over in India, which, you know, we don't know what the outcome will be then. They're extremely depressed. They're really frustrated. And talking to them the other day, the celebration wasn't the same for them as it was for us. I'm desperately trying to get over there because I want to tell this second part of the story. You know, I certainly want to stop the main girls from giving up. The trekking business will open very soon. Bookings are starting to come in for January and February. So it's just trying to ensure that we keep them motivated for that. There's also the hostel. Obviously, money stopped coming in for the hostel because people went over there and had experience about working with the kids. So then they'd fall in love with the kids and help with the financial side of that. So that's been struggling as well. So yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty sad to see the high that we're all on in February, March last year to the devastation that's happening in the village. And they've also also just dealt with a massive flood that happened and there was landslides happening within the villages around them. So it's been a really horrible 18 months for, for Nepal. And is there a fund page where people can donate to assist these women? Yes. Yeah, so Friends of Himalayan Children have both got a Facebook page and there's also their website, www.f-hc.org. Um, not only do they can they donate, they can also support um, one of the kids and, and sponsor one of the kids personally and just get ready to, to potentially head to the village themselves. You know, SOM is very open to people going to volunteer their time at the orphanage and I, I tell you, it is the, the greatest experience. If, if you've watched Oliver back in the day, you know, again, we have this, this interpretation of what a hostel would be like or an orphanage would be like. These kids are training to run marathons. These kids are champion marathon runners, trail runners, training to climb Everest. Like it is and educating themselves. They've got a library. It's unbelievable to see the power of this hostel. And, and yeah, it would definitely convince you to support the charity once you go. Usually when kids finish year 12, they head off to schoolies and celebrate down on the Gold Coast and have a party. But some has organised schoolies in Nepal. So you can actually, instead of doing that, you head off to the Batasi village to go and work with the kids. And so a lot of the, the finishing year 12 students will head off and, and do that as their schoolies instead. So there's some cool programs that, that he organises. So it's not just pass on the money and you never hear anything back. There's actually a lot of involvement as well. And the Nepalese women, as you say, uh, through trekking in the Himalayas, is frowned upon by the Nepalese trekking community. Is that still the resentment at the moment or is, is it more accepting and less of a resistance? There's a lot more acceptance. I mean, in the documentary, you hear Susan speak about Samjana, how when she first started trekking, she was banned from the tea houses. They wouldn't allow them to stay in the particular tea houses if they were a woman. They were told to go back and raise a family. But now, even when we were trekking, that was one piece of footage, obviously, I wanted to try and capture was the reaction from men. It's definitely becoming an admirable thing for the women to start walking. There was a documentary I watched the other day, which was also showing the women reaching Everest and being sh Sherpas for people who want to summit Everest. So it's definitely becoming bigger and hopefully it can spread across other countries within the trekking community. And as a woman filmmaker on the ground in Nepal capturing your film shoot, I, I guess it was a good thing that it was just you, right? Because what was happening with the locals, there were watchful eyes probably monitoring what you were doing, but you're very sort of under the radar a little bit, although I guess being joined with Som at the hip, that sort of elevates your prominence a little bit more. 
obviously the, the villagers have dealt with a lot of people with cameras. There's been films made up on the mountain so they know what to expect. I think the fear is about portraying the country as a good country and that's what I want to make sure is that people understand that Nepal is still a very beautiful country. I didn't really have any issues. It was good that I had the Sony A7R4. It was a typical DSLR. It was on a shoulder rig so it kind of looked a little bit different but I didn't want to stand out from the typical person with a camera. So that certainly helped. The locals were all, I think they've just been stopped constantly. Their kids are just so stunning. So the kids are always running up to you wanting to be filmed and it wasn't too difficult. I think being a one-person band filming all of this, there is so much emotion going on while you're climbing. You are so tired. You are so sad. You're hearing constant sad stories. And to have to work with a team at the time would cause, I think, a lot of chaos different opinions and that you don't really have time for that. If one person was to fall sick, then that would, you know, sort of crush the crew of filming the style that you want. And I wasn't too bad. I think the last day I remember walking back up and it was the last day and that's when I I kind of had a nervous breakdown. I think that's when exhaustion totally kicked in and I didn't know what I'd filmed. I didn't know if it was worthy or if I was going to be able to tell a story, but I just remember one of the other trekkers stopping me and asking if I was okay, and I just broke down and cried and asked him to leave, and it was definitely challenging. And from an execution point of view, with putting all of these pieces together, what was the hardest aspect for you to achieve with your film? It was telling the full story. It was... I just remember sitting there looking at all this footage and listening to because I needed to get some story in there and I needed to get the the village story and the the hostel story, the school, the base camp. Initially it was, you know, one and a half hours, but I wasn't ready to do a feature. I didn't feel it was engaging enough to do a feature because obviously features include a lot of historical footage. So I had to try and cut this into 20 minutes and to try and cut such an incredible story that that's told over, you know, 20 or 30 years of issues that are happening within the village was really difficult. So that's where there was a lot of hair pulled and grey hairs coming out and but it all worked out. And Susan's interview, like I said, there's hardly any cutting of the interview at all. She, that She just flowed with this beautiful story and I was able to capture enough footage to, to overlay the, that beautiful story being told. And as you mentioned, it's not an easy story to tell. The logistics on their own is a nightmare. You've got to get there. You've got to plan it all out. Just very, very challenging stuff from a filmmaking perspective. Absolutely. Trying to figure out what gear I can take and how much I'll be able to climb with and having to guard it with my life as well, like not knowing if I'd lose anything along the way. Obviously, permits and permissions and trying to go organise to get from Kathmandu to the village was big as well. So the funniest part was at the start of the trip and having a meeting with all the new trekkers and telling them what was going on. And then asking them, oh, listen, I'm going to be in your face. That You'll be vomiting, you'll be pooing, you'll be peeing, and there'll be a camera in your face. I don't want you to have a go at me. If you feel uncomfortable, all, all you need to do is put your hand up and that's it and I'll walk away. I wanted to try and capture every single moment. That was amazing because some of the most conservative people allowed me to film them at their most vulnerable times. And by that stage, I remember one of them turning around saying, I don't care what you film. Like This story is just so incredible that it needs to be told. So that was, yeah, that was great. So let's geek out a little bit now with what happened post-completing the film because you've picked up some awards. Uh, you mentioned Sony International Film Festival voted you as the winner for the best doc. So congratulations for thank that. You, thank you. Tell us a little bit about some of these accolades that have now come forward as a result of the film getting out there. 
Um, so, yeah, I've uh, submitted it into Sony Film Festival, which was the greatest achievement of my life so far. I'm, I was absolutely stoked. I was in absolute shock because the most incredible story that I found out of the documentaries was Pigman, who is a New Zealand film. That is absolutely a story I'd love to tell and it was beautifully shot. But, yeah, so hearing my name, Women Take On Nepal, come up as the winner was an absolute shock. There were celebrations happening across the country from Cairns with Sob and Susan to myself. It was just sad that, you know, it had to happen during a lockdown period. And then also submitting it into a couple of festivals overseas and the whole idea was the Sony Film Festival was one of them and the other one was Women Who Adventure Film Tour uh, were the two predominant festivals that I wanted to showcase this documentary and they both officially selected the documentary for their festival. So it's been unbelievable. I remember waking up the first time to a message from the Toronto International Women's Film Festival saying that it had officially been selected and it was my first selection ever and I have never felt that feeling in my life. It was just unbelievable. So it's been exciting. It's been a great you know, few months considering what's happened here in Sydney and how secluded and isolated we are at the moment. It's absolutely kept me alive and prevented me from falling into a very depressive state. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned the International Toronto Women's Film Festival. That's a festival which is dedicated to female cinema, discovering and bringing together female talents from all over the globe. So, you know, to be recognised in that way from the International Toronto Women's Film Festival, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. And that was great for the first official selection, I think. Um, it was unbelievable. I think it had won Best Short Documentary as well for that. It's been very difficult sitting here on my couch. You know, you walk out of the bedroom and you're just by yourself in this apartment and, you know, what's supposed to be this amazing feeling of going out there and celebrating with your friends and or potentially travelling and being able to experience this yourself has been a bit different. But um, I'm sure as soon as lockdown finishes, I'll be crossing borders and celebrating with plenty of people across the country and hopefully head off to Nepal and be with the girls again. Well, I can tell you that somebody sent me the link and said, Craig, you should have a look at this. And I watched your film and I went, wow, I've got to get Tania on the podcast. <laughs> you know, from a filmmaking point of view, I'm watching it. I d didn't know all of the backstory. I thought that'll be, that'll be a great story to unpack and present to our audience. That's, that means so much to me because I think it's so funny. It's, I don't think it's just being a, a, a female filmmaker. I think it's just in general when you're coming into the industry, you kind of need that kick of something that makes you feel like you're worthy and that you're, you're going to be different enough to be able to make a difference. And I think I doubted myself a lot during the time of making this, putting this together. There are in and outs. Like I said, there were times that I was just going to give up on it. It's definitely been the reactions of people watching this that has absolutely made me feel like not just a worthy female filmmaker but just a filmmaker in general. You know, that is all part, though, of being a filmmaker is self-doubt. We do that all the time as filmmakers and the goal is to get to the end. Yeah. That's the hardest thing is got to keep going, got to keep going, got to get to the end. And look what happens. You got to the end, you told a beautiful story. And it's been recognised in some of these film festivals. Yeah, that's so good. I think if you believe in the story that much, it just comes to light naturally. Like 
I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but you could do 20 edits and something happens so the, the render stuffs up or your computer breaks down or and you lose everything and you tend to do the last one and it ends up being the most perfect edit without even trying. And so it's just like the universe of film always puts you in these really horrible situations because it knows it's got something better ready for you and that's exactly what happened here, at, uh, waiting that period out and waking up one day and saying, I need to restart this edit. And then it just flowed. It flowed so perfectly. And, and the edit was quite easy the, the last time doing it. So yeah, we do have a, a special person up there somewhere looking after the film industry people. <laughs> That's what I feel. <laughs> I know you've done so well. And if a producer is listening to this podcast, wondering if you have a feature that you want to tell, let's throw that up right now. I've done it with another couple of short film directors. Because, Tania, as we know, it's all about connections in the film industry. So here's an opportunity to talk about a project that you might have swelling around in the back of your head. You might have something that's already pen to paper in the long form. So is there anything that you'd like to, to tell us about? Um, I don't have anything in the pipeline. It's been very difficult to try and run out there and grab stories being locked down. So that's what I'm usually the person that will go out there and the story comes into my lap. But I certainly, certainly need to tell the second part of this story and I need to get back to Nepal and, and film what's happening with the girls now because at the end of the day, Kamala's training to climb Everest Summit and that's going to be the ultimate story to end this whole, I guess, it's series of what's happening with particularly the girls in Batasi Village. So there's that. But I do, you know, always, always am open to learning so much from directors out there and producers and would absolutely love to have a mentor to speak to regarding it. I mean, I'm being offered a, a great mentoring session with the Sony Film Festival, but, yeah, I'm always open to, to trying to dig in how to be a better person with filmmaking. So if anyone wants to reach out and be a mentor, that would be the ultimate thing for me, I think. So you talk about the second half of wanting to go back and finish it. Would you be looking at making a feature doc? So, yeah, I definitely, it would be a feature, but it would absolutely explain pretty much the first half of what we've done into going into the second. This time, I certainly want to up the value on my production team um, equipment and, and make it cleaner and, I guess, more step up in my career. The next goal for me is to make a feature, whether it's going to be that particular project. So, Som and I are already in discussion with trying to make that happen. But yeah, definitely my next goal is a feature, but whether it's going to be the second version of Women Take on Nepal, I'm not really sure yet. So there could be filmmakers listening to this right now thinking, gosh, I'd like to get in touch with Tania. So what we'll do perhaps is leave a link in the show notes so that if somebody wanted to reach out to you, make contact, you could pick it up and go from there. Sounds good. If anyone's looking for a person that loves to go on adventures and do really tough hikes <laughs> and can hold a camera, then I am definitely the person for you. Well, thank you, Tania, for the insights into your award-winning film, Women Take On Nepal. It's a story that had to be told and you told it so beautifully. Well done to you and certainly creating the opportunity for the rest of us to see it. And thanks so much for taking the time to come on to the film podcast. I really appreciate you listening to me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week. <laughs>